An Astounding Prophecy. That's the title of this evening's message. And uh, before we dig into the first verse, you should know in the Hebrew Bible, the first verse of chapter 9 is connected to the last verse of chapter 8. And that makes sense. In verse 22 of chapter 8, Then they will look look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. And then verse 1, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. No wonder this is very difficult reading in your devotional times. If you have no study Bible, no study aid, you're really left scratching your head. But he's still dealing with What's going to happen to the northern kingdom? At the time, Isaiah is ministering in the south. The northern kingdom is still there at this point, although he'll be around when it falls. But um, not yet. It's, it's still there, and he's still dealing with the problems. To us, it's, it's, you know, history. But in those days, it was life or death. Uh, the people would be looking to the prophet. Has God said anything to you? What's going to happen? Are the Assyrians coming here? We've got family up in the north. What's going to happen? And so these prophecies were, were quite well received and, and profound amongst the righteous. And um, so he continues with this theme of light and darkness. Uh, things are going to change when the invading forces of the Assyrians kick into gear because of the apostasy, of course. It's always before us in the Old Testament. It says here in verse 1, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. Well, that refers to the many invasions that the Jews would suffer coming from the north, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Syrians, the Romans, Nebuchadnezzar. The north was the main route towards Jerusalem. Uh, There was Egypt and uh, to, to the south, but not as much of a threat and a burden, and history uh, bears that out. And so the Jews in Jerusalem, of course, they knew the enemies would come from the north, and and that's what uh, Isaiah is dealing with. He says, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. And that is, again, the direction from which the Assyrians would invade, and eventually the Babylonians. Verse 2, now we haven't gotten to the, the good stuff yet, Uh, Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Well, the shadow of death was was these armies. It was very real to them. Uh, You know, we we have our worries in our age, uh, but for them it was the real threat of these massive and vicious armies. But brighter days were ahead, and that's what the prophet is saying. Of the twelve tribes of Israel, these smaller, these two smaller tribes, or less significant tribes, Nephtali and Zebulun, they're singled out. And they're being linked in this prophecy to Emmanuel, back from chapter 7. Isaiah will begin to tie it in soon. From their territory... Messiah arises to remove the doom and darkness of sin 
but he does it in phases, which stumbled the apostles when they were the disciples, which also stumbled the religious elite in Israel. And also many students today don't, don't see the two-phase um, ministry of Messiah, his first coming and his second coming. And when the prophets spoke of it, they often just weaved it in to what they were saying. I don't know how much the people were grasping concerning what's about to be said in the day of Isaiah, but looking back over history now from where we are, we have a lot of fact here that it makes it so easy to follow the breadcrumbs to the source and to come up with that conclusion, which is our doctrine, that this is Jesus Christ and none, none other. And so the New Testament, of course, that they did not have, we have, Matthew chapter 4, applies this section of Scripture to the Messiah and says this is prophetic. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Well, that's the region we're talking about. That's in uh, the territory of Nephtali. And it continues, leaving Nazareth, and now Nazareth is in the territory of, of um, uh, the other guy, <laughs> Zebulun. So he comes on here, he, um, and, yeah, that's right. Continuing in Matthew, leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Well, Capernaum is also in Nephtali's territory, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Nephtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Gentile of the Ga uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. And he continues to, to quote Isaiah. So, <clears throat> by the time we get to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit's revealing these things to the church and saying, Isaiah was speaking about Messiah. Christ is the one who is the Messiah. Ultimately, its fulfillment comes in the second coming of Christ, when, which we'll get to that in a minute. And so let me read on a little bit further. Here in verse 2 he says, Have seen a great light. Uh, that's the Galilee of the Gentiles. The Savior's boyhood is in this region. John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. These things are all tied in together. They're not fragmented. And if you have a knowledge of the scripture, if you have a knowledge from reading the prophets and reading what the New Testament writers say, it's a perfect fit. Well, verse 3 goes on. It says, you have multiplied... <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Pause. Go. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy... They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Well, that's all future because it hasn't happened yet. And this is what I mean. That you, you see the phases of Messiah, his first coming, when he does come to the region of Naphtali and Zebulun. And then when he is going to bring this peace that Isaiah is now introducing. So verses 3 and 4 are still future, not yet happened. Christ's first coming, he brought the light into the world through Galilee. And his second coming, 
He will bring the joy to the nation of Israel. And, and of course, it will be global. And he will put an end to enslavement and war. And that's what these two verses are introducing. The thrice repeated in verse 4, his burden and his shoulder, his oppressor. Well, that refers to Israel. The rod of the oppressor, that's the emblem of tyranny. And so the prophet is saying, the days are coming when Messiah comes. We're not going to be under the threat of war and oppression and enslavement. And the Jews, of course, still have a lot of history ahead of them. Because after the Assyrians are dealt with, of course, the Babylonians will then come and eventually conquer uh, all of Judah, Jerusalem, and take them captive, and then they come back. So there's a lot of stuff going to happen. And he mentions here, as in the day of Midian. Well, the Midianites were oppressors of the Jews, and God miraculously raised up Gideon, and Gideon uh, put a whooping on them. Verse 5, For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garment rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Well, there... Some of the historians tell us that the Assyrians did roll garments in blood to sort of terrorize the armies they were going to face. They did a lot of things that were full of terror, the Assyrians did. Military hardware will be a thing of the past. That's what that verse is saying. It's spoken in chapter 2 of Isaiah in Micah. Peace will make violence obsolete when Messiah comes. And now... In verse 6, of course, the prophet is going to get right to it. A child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Well, there's a lot there of all the people in the Bible, the only one in history that can encapsulate all these superlative titles is Jesus Christ. No one else in history has a record anywhere near it. And what backs up Christ, of course, is are the witnesses that suffered and died uh, in witness of, of these things about him. This is one of the most explicit passages in the Old Testament that speaks of this coming figure who is God as man. His humanity within his divinity. And that's something that we Christians should, should be able to articulate. The humanity of Christ through the virgin birth, but his divinity. He's always divine. He never gave up his divinity. Uh, he gave up his humanity when he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the spirit. Uh, <clears throat> he retains enough of these things for us, of course, uh, so that... There is no doubt who he is. There is a, an interesting pattern of prophecies that outline the birth of Christ, his ministry, and his millennial ministry just in three chapters of Isaiah. And uh, it's a three-phase plan, uh, the, the coming, the life, and the second coming. The promise God with us, Emmanuel. I did not spend too much time on the prophetic nature of that in chapter 7. I should probably just read it briefly. 
chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And back then, and when we were in chapter 7, I mentioned it had a dual fulfillment. The prophecy was fulfilled on some level, though not miraculous, but extraordinary in the day of Isaiah, in the day of Ahaz. But then it has a future fulfillment that is extraordinary and miraculous in the virgin birth. And now we can give, go back and give it more attention because Isaiah is giving it much more detail in this section. So the three-phase plan for Messiah, the promise of God with us. Well, we just read the mighty God. A son is given, the mighty God. And uh, that's God with us. His arrival, that is his life, a son is given. And his rule, the Prince of Peace. I'm going to stay with this for a little bit. But in chapter 7, verse 14, he is about to be born. The virgin will have a child. Here in chapter 9, verse 6, he's already born. For unto us a child is born, is born. Unto us a son is given. And then when we get to chapter 11, in verse 4, we will then read his millennial rule, where he is in power. And there in chapter 11, verse 4, we read, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide their equity with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. So we see this in this, these breadcrumbs laid out for us in Isaiah, speaking about Messiah. We have so much accumulated history concerning him, not only from the prophecies, but prophecies fulfilled, the writings of the New Testament, that it's so easy for those who are born again and responsive to the Spirit. And so these three form some of the greatest messianic passages in all the Old Testament. No historical Davidic king fits the picture of this ideal ruler. You cannot apply any of this. You know, some of the passages that you can say, well, you know, you can see David in that and, and Messiah. Not, not in verse 6. It doesn't apply to anyone else. You cannot apply verse 6 to Abraham, to Daniel, to Joseph, to no one. Only Christ. It is an extraordinary prophecy. And so, in, again, chapter 7 in verse 14, announcing his birth. In chapter 11, which I just read from a moment ago, there we have his millennial kingdom, his rule over the earth. But here, the emphasis is on his person. And what is said about him, I, I can't, can you imagine not having Isaiah 9, 6? Well, we have enough other things, we still have a a sufficient amount of scripture. But this just sort of just, uh, just you know, crushes all the opposition in, in its presentation. And so the first and second coming of the Lord wonderfully blended together in Isaiah 9, 6, and I haven't read 7 yet, but 7 is, is, has to do with the future. 
So staying here with verse 6, for unto us a child is born. That's his humanity, the Christmas story, the virgin birth, Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew chapter 1, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, that is Isaiah, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Unto us the child is born, God with us. He says, unto us a son is given. This speaks of his deity. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Well, that's not random. When Christ spoke that, he knew about Isaiah 6. He authored it. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Not only the church, but the Old Testament saints also. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. There's no other that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, it's about salvation of sinners, the light that has come, that we opened up with, that things were going to get brighter for humanity. God has always got his eyes on sin and eternity and the solutions. And if we could stay that way, if we could keep our eyes on those two things more often, we'd stay out of a lot of arguments that are just waste of time. Paul warns, you know, those who argue about endless genealogies, eating meat, and holidays, they want to argue it. Let them argue it. Paul says, we have bigger fish to fry than that. Uh, He says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Well, that's future, because he's he's not ruling yet, not the the world as as he's sovereign, but he is not boots on the ground. That's going to come, his second coming. And uh, here is why, one reason why, the Jews and the disciples thought that he would restore the kingdom. Well, the Jews were like, well, if you're the Messiah, then how come the Romans are still ruling over us? Because they didn't understand the two comings of Christ, of their Messiah. The disciples, on the other hand, after his resurrection, well, it's time now, right? Acts chapter 1. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, Luke 24, verse 21, on the road to Emmaus, them speaking to the risen Christ, not even knowing it's him, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. He's going to redeem all Israel. He's going to, you know, the millennial reign, the temple of Ezekiel be put up. So, uh, again, they did not factor in the cross of Christ and then the kingdom of Christ. And then he says, and his name will be called Wonderful. Name is nature in the scriptures. And the nature of Christ is that he is wonderful. In the book of Judges, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah, the father of Samson. We read this in chapter 13 of Judges. And the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? It's a declaration. It's like, I am amazing. It's true. It's not bragging if it's true in this context at all. And it's just, I love that little, you know, just put in the middle of Judges like that. And then it shows up. It flashes out to us from a, from Isaiah. 
You just can't make this stuff up. Isaiah 25. Oh, Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and true. This is poetry. Well, he's also called here the counselor. A lot of people want counsel, and sometimes we, we do need counsel, but not, not like it's being abused, I fear, by so many today, who fail to see that the Holy Spirit is our counselor. Christ is our counselor, and they're not divided, uh, because he guides us into all truth. He guides us into the, the life we are to live before God and, 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 and men, with men. Isaiah 48, verse 17. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Well, there's counsel in that. Isaiah 28, verse 29. You see how much Isaiah has to say about Messiah? He is the Messianic prophet by, by far. He says, this also comes from Yahweh of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. So he is wonderful, that's all by itself. He is the counselor, that's all by itself. He is a wonderful counselor that just takes both of them and blends them together. Uh, and no one's got God like this. Can you imagine the Greeks having something like this? No one has anything like this. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's just uh, quite amazing. Anyway, and then you add to that as you read these things, the movement of the Spirit of God in your heart as you're reading them, opening it up to you, helping you to, to receive it. Isaiah 11, verse 2, The Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. Which is, we see this when he walks in Galilee, when he, when he enters into public ministry. Uh, no one ever spoke like this. You know, they sent them to arrest him. We, we couldn't arrest him. He just, his discernment was so incredible. He should have been there. Uh, just, uh, can you imagine how people would turn on, on Christ who harmed no one and could have wiped out everyone? I could call 12 legions. In fact, I don't even need the legions. Well, mighty God. Well, that eliminates a lot of people, does it not? The mighty God eliminates those who cannot match the signs and wonders. From Cana, turning the water into wine, which displayed his creative powers as the source of life. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the source of life. And it's said in different ways, from different angles. So if you, you want to debate it, you lose on each one. Well, you come, we, uh, mighty God, uh, from Cana to the empty tomb. If you can do that, then maybe we can talk. But you can't. To see Jesus uh, uh, as God, because to see Jesus is to see God. Philip said, Show us the Father and it will suffice. And Jesus said, have you been with you so long? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, we have to open that up a little bit more. But 
at this is a good point to say, Jesus had to be who he was in order to do what he did. You can't have a sinner come, you could not have a created being take your sin away. It, it would take God. When you, you now looking at the record, looking at everything, it's like you know, it's like God says, you know, if you want to do something right, you got to do it yourself. First Timothy chapter three, without controversy. Now, of course, the naysayers would. I have a controversy. It's like, well, I'm talking to you. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. The Son is given. He continues, justified in the spirit. No, you just can't have, you have no charges against the Christ. Seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. This given son is Emmanuel, God with us, the mighty God. Now we get to Isaiah 10. We read, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Now, that's talking about Yahweh. Well, so is this. It's the same person. The everlasting Father. This actually is an easier one than what you might suspect. Because a better rendering from the Hebrew is the Father of Eternity. Jesus said this. All, well, John said this about Jesus. John chapter 1. All things were made through him. And without him... Nothing was made that was made. You could be three years old and understand that. Well, a smart three-year-old. I don't, I don't know what a three-year-old knows. But you could be a child and you can understand that. He is the source of life. That's what this, when it says father of eternity, the Jews, they're going in a different direction with this. One more from Colossians. And there are three of these. One in John, Colossians, and Hebrews. I'll just take Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. And that doesn't leave anywhere else. That's physical and spiritual. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. See, this is why the Jehovah's Witnesses are in their guilt. And the Mormons, you know, they're going to believe the guy that had his sunglasses on and could see things. They actually believe that. I think Brigham Young actually taught there were people on the sun. That should get a chuckle. Anyway, you know, again, goes back to once you reject the clear word of God and start taking man's word and over it, you believe the kookiest things. Everlasting Father does not suggest that the Son is the Father, although they are one. Each person in the Godhead is distinct. We do not worship three gods. We have one God with three distinct personalities. Four corners, three, four corners, four corners of a triangle. <laughs> three corners of a triangle. So among the Jews, when you spoke of the Father, you were speaking of the originator, the source. So in John, for example, chapter 8, when Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Uh, he said that he is the father of lies, the originator of lies. Lies began with Satan. 
And so this context in the Jewish, in Jewish literature and mind is, is not saying that Jesus is the Father, but he is the originator, the originator of eternity. As I just read those two verses from John 1, verse 3, and Colossians 1, 16. So if you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus Christ. This is how the Father has ordained it. Many more verses that just continue to back this up and clarify it. He is the source of eternity. Uh, that's why he is the Son eternal. Eternity past, eternity forward. Uh, not to be confounded with the Father, though he and the Father are one. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father, I and the Father are one. So, uh, the Prince of Peace is next. Well, at his first coming, he only brought peace to man with God. Paul boasts about that in Romans. We have peace with God, Romans 5. Luke writes uh, that at his coming, the angels announced this, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This is coming from God. These are angels are messengers of God. And they're coming in and say, this is the coming of this child is a message of peace to mankind. Of course, not the physical peace. That will come later. 1 John chapter 3. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, he did that, but now there's combat between the devil and all of his surrounding influences and the people of God. Uh, Matthew ten thirty four. Jesus said, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, he's talking about his first coming. When he comes a second time, he's also going to bring a sword. But then, it's going to be down to peace. And we go back to the earlier verses of chapter 9, where he talked about the sandals of soldiers being you know, thrown into the fire. No more weapons of war, is the, the idea. <clears throat> At his second coming, there will be global peace. Isaiah 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations. And rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Even if you know all these things, it's still amazing to hear it. At least it is to me. I mean, in preparing this, this is the best part. Just talking about Jesus. Uh, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan... The Caesars, Napoleons, all of these guys wanted to bring the world under their control and, and have their vision of peace. And today, because you can go anywhere in the world, there's this idea of globalization. Uh, this ain't going to work. You still have sinners. You're still stuck with, with, with evil people. These men failed, uh, and the globalization under Antichrist will not work. Only the Prince of Peace will bring world peace, but not yet. Right now it's a sword. And um, nine, verse, nine, uh, verse 7. Now, now here he is going future again. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
You know, after, after verse 7, the rest goes back to telling the Jews how they're going to be judged. So let's take our time before we get back to that, because there's nothing new there. It's just a repeat. And, and again, it was meaningful, and very meaningful in the days of Isaiah. It's so meaningful now to us. It's, it's history uh, of what God did with them. But anyway, coming back to verse 7, his kingdom is eternal because he is eternal. Uh, you, you know, where are you going to be in a hundred years? That means everything. The purpose of your life is to get to heaven. Now, that includes a lot of other things. For example, if I'm trying to get to heaven, if that's the best thing that can happen to me, well, it would say something about me if I want to bring others too. And it would say something very bad about me if I didn't care about others. Well, you can go to hell. I'm going to heaven. Uh, I mean, there's some of that when a person says, I don't want to hear it. And well, you can go to hell if that's your choice. I'd rather you not. But, uh, well, you know, everything about us is going towards heaven. That's the life of the believer. Our concern is how bumpy is the ride going to be? I mean, how much pain are we going to have to suffer emotionally, physically, or any kind? But still, that is, that's it in a nutshell. That eternity that he offers, the same eternity that he has going forward, he's going to share with us. Now, you either believe that by faith, or your faith is dead. It's up to you. And uh, if you say, well, I, I, I don't really feel it. Well, you know, talk to, well, that's not a, Trusting it is more important than feeling it. But if you're having that struggle, you need to tell God about it right out. Talk to him about it until you get an answer. And never let it go. I would, I would be waiting every morning on his doorstep. Here I am, Lord. Let's talk about this. Uh, that, that's the, you know, Jesus, didn't he not say that to the woman? <laughs> that, uh, the, the, the woman that just wouldn't let the issue go with the judge? And uh, he says, your father is more eager to respond to you than that judge. Anyway, there is no one this can apply to except the returning Christ. You cannot say of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. You can't say, even say that about David. It replies to, in all this, verse 9, if Jesus is not the Messiah, there will never be one. It's too late. The prophecies have sealed it. It's now impossible to prove your divinic lineage. How are you going to do that now? Jerusalem's destruction has closed the window. Amalekai says he will suddenly come to his temple. There is no more temple. The next temple that will build will be too late. There are other parts of the prophecies that are left undone. The only way you could fulfill so many of the prophecies concerning Christ is to have lived in the days when the temple was there in Jerusalem and you could prove you're lying to David. And as of 70 AD, that's all gone. If Jesus is not the Messiah, then there will never be one. The Jews don't want to hear that. And you just listen to these crazy things they come up with, how they excuse this, how they say, oh, Isaiah 53 is a lamentation over Israel. Are you kidding me? Anyway, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it, uh, Jesus alone fulfilled the Davidic criteria. 
with judgment and justice. Now, that's accountability without corruption. Who would feel comfortable going to court for your freedom, you know, in other words, on a criminal charge, and you knew you were innocent, how comfortable would you be in the hands of the courts? I wouldn't be comfortable. I would say, well, there's no way I'm going to lose. I'm innocent. Uh, you know, not only is there corruption, there's incompetence. It's a system of men. You get a lawyer who just, you know, presents his case better than your lawyer. Or you get a judge that just doesn't like your face. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. You go to a court looking for justice. Uh, Jesus said, listen, try not to go to court. He just says it right out. Try to settle the issue out of court. And, of course, when it comes to criminal charges, we try not to, to be criminals. But uh, it's, better, it's easier to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. Well, uh, here, we're, this judgment and justice, there will be accountability without corruption. And you get that in chapter 11. When we get to chapter 11, it will, will go over his rule. Uh, what I like about chapter 11 when he talks about his as Messiah is that he doesn't, he doesn't have to open up what the law books say and the precedents. He just simply knows. <laughs> he knows you're guilty. Say, I, don't, I don't care what you said. You're guilty. I know you are, and that's that, because I am God. No man can do that. He'll be able to do that. So we'll get to that in chapter 11. Anyway, from that time forward, even forever. Well, that's largely the message of Gabriel to Mary. A message of his rule, Luke chapter 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now, when he said that, I don't think his tone was harsh or stoic, you know, like, you know, a drill instructor, just, you know, forceful. He was just very gentle because he had the benefit of just the Spirit of God moving through this whole thing where Mary was just like, you know, clay to, to receive it. Uh, just an incredible time. Anyway, because uh, you have to factor in just how she would have been received by Zacharias, who was a priest, and why did he and Elizabeth view her as the actual, you know, just so many things the Holy Spirit was doing behind the scenes that are picked up in, in the writings a little bit, but... Um, just uh, much of it is just beyond us. Anyway, uh, he, he, the Gabriel continues to marry. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Mary's like this. <laughs> Mouth open. What, what does she say to this? I mean, she's, she's just a young girl, really. Um, what does she know about life at this point? And, and continue, what, and what does anybody at her age know about life, right? Uh, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Could you imagine? It's just incredible. Mary is just a special person, man. Just a, uh, who does not want to interview Mary? And so tell me, what was it like on his fifth birthday? You know? <laughs> anyway. Uh, we talk about, well, did you ever get angry with him? I think it probably would have been, I don't know, there's this thing about him. We, we'd all feel convicted if we did something wrong. And he wouldn't even say anything. I don't know. It's just your imagination, right? Uh, everything would be in his favor. Daniel. I love this from Daniel chapter 2. This is, the, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar statue. 
Uh, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which should never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. See, this is the glory of Christianity. Christianity is not a religion. It's truth. It's reality. It is the reality of the universe. We just call it Christianity because we're attaching it to the Savior, to the the anointed one, the Christ. Uh, And then he says in verse bottom of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In other words, God's passionate about this. You, there's, there's nothing, there's no way he's going to be talked out of this. And that's just a seal that he puts, the, the, Isaiah puts a seal on the prophecy with that. Yeah, the zeal of the Lord is going to make this happen. There's nothing can stop it. And uh, anyway, by na- for now, the just shall live by faith. We know where we're going, and it is our job to be part of the process of get, getting others to go there too. Others who would otherwise not get there. Well, verse 8, now we come back to the judgments. And we should be able to move through this quickly. Because it really is not uh, anything we haven't heard in some form. Verse 8, Yahweh sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. This will run from verse 8 into chapter 10, uh, the northern kingdom being invaded by the Assyrians, verse 9. All the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. A bunch of smart alecks is what Isaiah is dealing with here. He describes their attitude uh, in, in this life. Even if they don't say that back to him about his prophecies, that's their attitude. You know, if, you know, if, if a catastrophe happens because it's supposed to be a judgment of God, well, we'll just rebuild. And, you know, bricks are good, but hewn stones are better. Sycamores, same thing, you know, they, they're good, but uh, cedars are something better than sycamores. So and we see this attitude in man today that, we, well, we just re, we'll rebuild and make it even better. Um, just, just living for the moment in this life. And Isaiah is telling them, you're, you're pushing against God. You're going to be judged. You think you're going to survive. That's exactly what happened to the northern kingdom. Isaiah is saying that you, you think that when the Assyrians come and they chop, chop down trees to make uh, siege engines and they destroy your walled cities... You think you're going to rebuild. You're not. You're going to be taken away. But on a grander scale, God is saying that to unbelieving man. You think you're going to survive judgment. You think you've made it this far without God, you're going to make it all away. That way is a way that seemed right to man, but its way leads to death. So, uh, again, life is about getting to heaven, and there's only one way there, and we know what it is. It's an irrational habit of scoffers to suppose that they can recover from catastrophes without spiritual truth. And before we were believers, we thought the same way. Uh, You know, we will rebuild, cannot save your soul. So Peter says the scoffers will come in the last days. They were around in Peter's day, walking according to their own lusts, 
and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The people that were saying that to Peter, where are they now? Because they're dead and gone, and they've been dead and gone for 2,000 years. He's saying, Peter's saying, they're going to be in the future too. But they were in that day. Verse 11, Therefore Yahweh shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and spur his enemies on. So we're still in the historical setting. Reason was the king of of Syria. The Assyrians took him out first, and then they took out almost all the northern kingdom. And about 12 years later, they took out the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. Verse 12, the Syrians before the Philistines... Yeah, did I read? Yeah, I read that. Verse 12, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So he's talking about the judgments that are coming to the northern kingdom. Um, The hand stretched out. You know, it sounds like, oh, it's just God offering... No, that's not what it is in this context. I use, Isaiah uses it five times, and each time it's judgment. Uh, he, his hand is still stretched out in, in judgment. Uh, the Syrians and the Philistines will make incursions into that area, and the people will, will suffer. Uh, verse 13, For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek Yahweh of hosts. Do you know there is... A patron saint for drug smugglers? I'm not kidding you. You see, this is the kind of madness that's out there. The, in, in Mexico, in a particular village city in Mexico, they have a shrine to this guy. Some Mexican version of Robin Hood from the 1800s, they've turned into a patron saint, and they, they put offerings to him, they pray to him, help us smuggle drugs into the country. Of, you know, these guys are killers. Uh, help us, you know, protect us as we go attack this police station. Uh, it's just insane. And, and so when we look at these judgments coming against the people in Israel, let's remember this is real stuff. You don't, you don't have to go back in history to Israel to find madness. So, I mean, you can't, you can't even... Answer that kind of an argument. The only thing you could say to somebody that does that is the Lord Jesus Christ rebuke you. That's what else can you can't can you reason with anybody like that? I want God to bless me while I ruin lives on the other side of the border and make money for doing it. Anyhow, verse 14. Now, you can go fact check me on this, and if I'm right, you owe me ten dollars. No, no, we don't we don't do that. Verse 13, verse 14. Therefore. Yahweh will cut off the head and the tail from Israel, the palm branch, the bulrush. In one day, verse 15, the elder and the honorable, he is the head, the prophet who teaches lies. He is the tail. Verse 16, for the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. So the false prophets, they, uh, they played the upfront role of the head. But in fact, they were the tails being wagged by the demands of the people. This is the church at Laodicea. These are many churches today. They, they preach the Bible, but they don't seek the Lord. They do what the, will get the people to come into church and stay and give them money and grow the church. You know, what else do you want us to do? Uh, 
Anyway, inadequate leadership is one of the signs of God's judgment at work. Because when God is blessing, he raises up leaders. I mean, uh, we read in, in Deborah's song, when leaders lead in Israel, the people are blessed. I will give you shepherds. So how many times do we hear uh, uh, Jeremiah present such a, 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 a truth? <clears throat> the Lord will raise up shepherds. Uh, but the opposite of that is when, when there are no shepherds, when you have no leadership, and, and leadership, by definition, uh, it is um, not, it's not led by the people. It's, it can be certainly touched by the people, not insensitive, but it, it's bottom line, it has to make its decisions. So uh, that's... What's happening here, the, the, these false prophets are, are really the tail being just wagging around at the impulses of the people. Verse 17, therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly, for all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So the consequence uh, even the people that were the uh, underdogs were hypocrites and evildoers. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Gosh, if you could find ten men, you know, God doesn't believe in luck, but we have a saying, you know, good luck with that. It's the, the idea of that, you know, you know you're not going to work. And, and Lot, he couldn't find ten people, could he? Probably seemed like Abraham a good deal. And, you know, all right, ten. There's got to be ten good people. And no, there doesn't. Where's it written that there has to be one? So, verse 17. Therefore, the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy in their father. Oh, I read that. Sorry. And you say, whew, glad you caught that. <laughs> verse 18. For wickedness burns as fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns, kindle thickets of the forest. And they shall mount up like rising smoke. It's a good verse to memorize. <laughs> Though the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, the land is burned, through the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother. I, I think this is pretty intense. It's coming from God. And these things happen to the northern kingdom. Verse 20 And he shall snatch, and he shall snatch on the right hand. And be hungry, he shall devour on the left hand, and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. So these are, there's a nasty situation going on there. Verse 21, Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim and Manasseh, together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So the house divided, the horrors of the siege, the pressure is on them, the savagery comes out. And the bottom line is, and Nehemiah prayed, he mentions this in the ninth chapter. He talks about all this in his prayer. Anyway, and it's not only Nehemiah, the people at that time. They were turning on each other because they turned against God. Is, is really what happened. Let, let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, uh, sure is a better part of this chapter talking about your son and his glory. But then there's that harsh reality that cannot be uh, sidestepped. We pray we, we learn from these lessons. We ask you get us all home safely. In Jesus' name, amen.